Welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, the one and only fitness and nutrition podcast that goes way beyond just training and nutrition and helps you create a life by design. I'm your host, Cody McBroom, and today we have Steve Hall from Revive Stronger on the podcast. Steve has been on twice before. We did a one-on-one interview, uh, must have been a couple years ago at least now, and then we did a roundtable at one point with him and another coach on the podcast diving into program design. And today we just kind of recap. We, we uh, Me and Steve have stayed in touch over the years. We are a similar age. We have been in the industry for a similar amount of time, so it's just been cool to see each other's growth over the years. And I wanted to bring him back on to just catch up, talk to him a little bit about him uh, going over to Worlds because he competed in Worlds, uh, a World Federation for Bodybuilding in Las Vegas not too long ago. So he traveled all the way from Europe to go compete at this uh, bodybuilding show and really at the highest level. And Steve is one of the most committed and inspiring natural bodybuilders that I've ever met or seen. His physique is insane. His genetics were horrible at the beginning, which we talk about today. And he was a distance runner. And he has literally transformed his physique in a way that it is very, very rare to see, especially as a natural lifter. But he's done so with science-based methods and a very patient approach to training and nutrition. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We answer some typical questions that I get from you guys that I think would uh, be perfect for Steve to answer, as well as talk about his journey and how he's been able to create this insane transformation for himself and what parts of it actually apply to you on how you can transform your physique too. So if you want to follow Steve or check out more of his content, he is literally just revived stronger everywhere. So you uh, can tag him on Instagram. If you love the show, make sure you take a screenshot, post on your story, tag him at Revive Stronger, tag myself at Cody McBroom. Both of those will be in the show notes of this podcast as well as his website, YouTube, that kind of stuff. So you can continue learning from him if you would like. Um, and yeah, so let's get into this podcast. Let's talk to Steve about bodybuilding, about physique development, and about all things transforming your body. The one and only Steve Hall. All right, dude, this is, uh, I'm excited to have you back on. It's been, I think we've had you on twice actually, because we had you on a round table, but it has been a while, man. It's been a minute since you've been on. So I'm excited to chat because you've had a lot of updates and uh, you and I both talk to interview a lot of people as well on our podcast that are very deep into the research. Um, I believe we both have a chief science officer on our staff. So we're constantly diving into it ourselves. Um, and if you don't anymore, I know that you're constantly digging into the research. So um, I'm excited to talk to you because we're both coaches, we're practitioners in this, but we're, we're evidence-based. We're very heavy on the research. So it's going to be cool to see if any of the topics that we've talked about in the past or any of the things that we've both believed in or, or used in our training and nutrition have changed at all. And there's a few things I want to talk to you about today that I think you might have changed your perspective on or have just shifted a little bit. Um, but nonetheless, man, before we dive into it, Steve, give us a little update. Um, people can go back and listen to the intro uh, of the last podcast or check out your content, which I'll link in the show notes if they want to hear your backstory because we've, we've done that uh, a couple times. Um, but how is life, man? Where have you been at? I know you just got done competing. Kind of a, give us the, the Steve Hall update, if you will. For sure. So yeah, no, first of all, thank you again for having me on the show. I know you said it's really picked up and grown and like I've been keeping as you probably do with me as I like just like a side eye on kind of how's that going what's going on and so it's it's awesome to see that the podcast has grown so much and that you yourself uh, like as your business has grown as well so congrats to yourself uh, in terms of yeah me and kind of competing it feels like ages I guess it kind of has been ages now because the time just runs away with us but yeah I competed last year um so the last the time when did I finish competing I think it was November um that I kind of came off stage and that was at WMBF world so I managed to make it all the way to the world stage and uh came second in the I think they do it in they did it in weight classes there as you know some like bodybuilding shows they do height classes weight classes and they all shifted in the uk to height classes just recently so that was new but there it was weight so that was the middle weights and i came second um in my class which like i said to you off air sadly meant i didn't get to challenge for like a pro card or anything but like i also said off air part of what drives me to keep doing this thing is like the fact that i can keep getting better and um, the listeners i don't know if we talked about it before but just in terms of my journey like when i reflect upon it i'm like how how like my first novice show i didn't even place in the top three in like a novice show and then the next time i competed i got to british finals and i think the best performance was fifth um at the uk dfba final actually i came third at the like mpa final but different federations it depends like the quality of athlete that turns up as well the uk fba being the big one so i came fifth and then this year to come like eventually second at like wmbf worlds is like an actual like 
bit of a career path as such. Um, I'm not sure how many people have such a trajectory. Uh, I tend to see people like they come in and they do very well and then they just keep doing very well or they're kind of just skirt underneath. I'm not sure. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's at least very gratifying for me to see that improvement. And it keeps me driven with my training nutrition and my kind of improvement seasons, as I would call them or off seasons to be diligent with that because it's clearly something's going on. And uh, yeah, I'm definitely, when I look at photos and I compare them like, wow, like I've really come a long way since then. So that's been really gratifying. And then, yeah, and then life stuff I've moved. So I don't know where we last would have done an interview, but it probably was in Vauxhall where we're in a flat. Whereas now we have, I've actually settled and bought a house. So it's kind of like a big life change. And I actually have like an office space. So I've yeah. been doing that all up, which has been really cool. And I have like a nice little studio to do proper podcasting from and feel a bit more legit, which uh, since I've been doing this over five years, it feels like that should have happened already. But uh, as you know, when you're just doing like online coaching and podcasting, you don't need a crazy setup. Uh, but now it's kind of getting to a better place. So I guess that's that's the, the most of it. And since stepping off stage, just I'm now almost 20 pounds above my stage weight, I'm feeling good, uh, eating plenty, training hard, and uh, things are going very well on that front as well. I love it, man. Yeah, I got a, actually quite a few questions on that um, that I didn't plan on today, but I think will be good. And the first one is, uh, and, and dude, first, congrats on all that. It's it's cool to see you grow. And like you said, I, there's there's a probably like a handful of people in this space that I do kind of keep that, that tab on and just check in and just watch from afar and just see the growth because they're uh, either similar to my age or similar to like my introduction to the industry. So they have like, you know, they're on the same kind sure. of experience path, right? They've been doing it just as long as me and they're just like for you, you're on the other side of the world, but it's, it's really cool to see, man. So congrats on all that. Um, in terms of competing, you know, you mentioned the trajectory and some people kind of just skirt under I don't know as much of the competing world as you do. So I'd be interested in your thoughts on this, but from my perspective, it's, it's very rare to see people do that almost because it's like people will do it. Maybe it's a bucket list item. They check it off. They don't do that well. So they don't get really inspired with it. Um, and then there's other people who are genetically gifted. They're like, Oh yeah, I'll do a show. They crush it. And they're like, Oh shit, this is actually pretty cool. And I'm just naturally really good at it. So they keep going and then it turns into this passion. Um, I think there's very few people like you because, um, and actually we were talking about Mike, I would say Mike's probably that way. I think, I don't think he did tremendously well when he first started and I've watched his physique change. Um, obviously not in the natural category, but he's improved tremendously just over the, and I've just watched him compete. Um, and obviously his training partners as well, Charlie looks insane, but, um, for you, it's that patience to me, right? Like it, there's not that many people who will have that trajectory because you know, how, how many, how much time did you have between those those shows where you have med, made those leaps because I got to imagine it takes a lot of consistent, patient, hard work between those periods of time to actually see that growth. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, th I think you make a good point in terms of like people. I, and it, it makes sense, like human nature, like you do well at something, you want to keep going at it. Mm -hmm. You don't do so well. So you're like, nah, this isn't for me. Uh, but I just, whenever I've competed and as you know, like, because we keep up to date with, best practice and things like this that always feels like there's, there's something else I can do here. There's more to come. Like, I don't feel like this is me. I feel like I've got more to give that. That's the, the, the feeling I always had with it. And because I've enjoyed the pursuit of not just the, I do really well with like the bodybuilding lifestyle in terms of, I love the routine. I love the structure uh, with the nutrition and the training side and the diligence to like sleep and recovery. It's just something like I crave and enjoy, but I've also enjoyed learning and kind of seeing what, I can do to improve myself. And I think if I wasn't doing bodybuilding, there'd be some other sport that I was pursuing and pushing myself and seeing what my limits were at it. Because even when I look at myself before I bodybuilded or kind of did this weightlifting, there was, there was always something I was pushing and testing myself and seeing how far I could go. So it just seems to have been the outlet I chose was bodybuilding, whether or not that was the smart move. I'm not sure we'll see, because uh, maybe arguably I'd be better off at like you know middle distance running or something like that because <laughs> uh that that always was something that i did actually initially have like talent for um i can't actually oh so the time between shows so yeah the first time i competed was 2014 then 2017 and then 2021 so it's been significant like three four off uh, years of off season and kind of building and developing as you know as a natural athlete like you're not gaining pounds upon pounds upon pounds of muscle like 
maybe every year you could somewhat do that but every month no chance mm -hmm. whereas when you're enhanced yeah competing every year makes much more logical sense because you can just make progress way faster so i think it is like you said it's that patience in the kind of and this is where the differences are made are not necessarily in that kind of that's fat loss zone of the, the, the contest prep itself it's the years that you're doing before that the due diligence building the muscle underneath to then present to stage and uh yeah i just i get into like a good groove and i just plow at it and i don't kind of uh, I, I just like let the results kind of come to me in that sense and enjoy the process so that's and i think and i would speak to this because i don't know how many people consider it but my job also allows for it so for example, like I very often would split my training into like a morning session and an evening session. So I'd have like my big compound lifts in the morning, like my maybe like a chest press and like a cable fly, like do my chest. And then in the evening I'll come and do triceps and delts. So I can like have two half an hour session, session, half an hour session. It's like, well, now my triceps are complete fatigue free, basically almost from my bench pressing and I've got a meal in. So now I can provide even better quality to my tricep training. Now, I don't think that makes the difference, but it's just one example where like I can be super consistent with my training. I can train six days a week. I can, I can cook all my meals in my kitchen downstairs. Like I don't have to worry about prepping or all these other variables that come into it. And I'm also not like the most social individual either. So I don't like quote unquote need or want to go out drinking or partying or whatever it might be i'm happy to see like one of my good friends like a couple of times a month and that like does me and I, i'm happy like being a bit of a loner in that sense but i think all of that just allows me to be a better bodybuilder uh and i i think my lifestyle and my personality just fits well with that sport whereas for other people it's like there's lots of friction there whereas for me it's like actually <laughs> i just slot into it really nicely uh, i don't know if that answers your question but it it's made me think of things that I don't normally think about or talk about where people might look at me and my results and be like, how is like, how like, that's like, there's not many people doing that, but I think it's partly those factors like lifestyle and also like, I guess, genetics in terms of my, uh, like personality and what I enjoy in life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah. it's, it's a, it's a really good point. Something I actually, I don't remember who it was, but we had somebody say, if you're going to compare compare the whole picture and I think that's really powerful because somebody would and you probably get this like I've get I'll get the random dude that will DM me and it's like hey what are your macros at right now and I'm like bro that is completely irrelevant to you you know and people will be like well I'm the same age and height so like how do I make that work and I always tell people like watch what I do and get inspiration and take my methods and stuff like that. But you got to understand, like, I, like I can see my gym right here. So like for me to yeah. not be able to train is damn near impossible. Cause I just take two steps and I'm in there, you know? Um, and, and it makes it way easier for me to do all the things that I get to do. And like you, like I, I generally enjoy staying home quite a bit. So it's not hard for me to avoid social things. Um, and we teach people how to fit to their life, but it's just good to put that stuff in perspective, you know, and I think that's, that's really powerful. Um, and it's powerful for people to hear that you took so long in between each phase, which is, it really does take that much time to build and, and change your physique. My, one of my questions that I wanted to bring up was, uh, that I didn't have listed that I sent to you was about cuts and bulks. I actually got this on my Instagram Q and A the other day and it was like, as a natural lifter, do you recommend, uh, cutting and bulking still or, like I think they said either main gaining or lean gaining or lean taining. There's like so many variations of it. Um, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> and, uh, and I said, yes, yeah. so I'd like, I'd love to get your thoughts. And I think this has kind of changed over the, over the years, but I, I, you know, I don't believe in people dirty bulking, getting fat, but I think there's, there comes a point in time where you're just not a newbie anymore and you probably have to, you just got to do it. You got to go into a surplus. You got to take those phases. It's good for your body. Like, um, how aggressive do you get with those with, the with the typical person maybe they are competing maybe they're not but they strive to have a better physique and like have your thoughts changed on that over time yeah i think um the idea of main gaining i think is the one that like got really popular because of greg duchette i guess mm -hmm. that's where that came from so a lot of people i know like he's become a little bit of an authority and he obviously has an amazing physique and a huge following so people are going to listen to him and like why would you listen to like a little natty like me versus like Greg Duchette, but maybe someone like me who has built their physique from where it was to where it is now is more, like you said, comparable to the people who are asking the question versus Greg Duchette, who obviously 
had some enhancements and things like this, had amazing genetics, did really well as an IFBB, like in, the, in that league, like he's probably less comparable to you as an individual. But anyway, that's a, a different point uh, in terms of, so, cause yeah, there was a time where people were like recomping is impossible. Like you have to be in a surplus to gain muscle. And that's kind of, we, we know now there's good evidence that that's not true. Uh, and even to the point where people say, okay, so recomping can happen, but it's, it's really only for like, very overweight individuals, people who are new to like optimizing their training and nutrition, doing things more scientifically based, principle based, uh, that sort of thing, or they're coming back off a layoff or, or they're just newbies in general, completely like they've just never trained before. So their ability to kind of recomp gain muscle and maybe even lose fat or kind of maintain their fat levels. So they kind of look leaner over time that can happen for them. And I think that's a good argument, but now we've even had research from Chris Barakat. Uh, where kind of advanced, pretty advanced guys, and I, I don't, I haven't delved into it as much as what Chris would be able to talk about it, but like fairly advanced guys are now also recomping. Um, but what I would say to that is in those scenarios, it's very challenging. Like I always think about it, like, and I think they even may say it in their paper, but it, these people are like, they're, they're nailing, they're crossing every T, they're dotting every I, and they're seeing good results and they're being able to recomp. But imagine, I always think of, imagine if you gave them a surplus, how much muscle they would gain uh, in that phase. And it's just way more predictable when you put that surplus there. It's kind of one of the biggest tools that we've got in terms of anabolism for growing muscle, like being in a surplus is anabolic in its own right, obviously anabolic towards like uh, muscle growth and fat gain, but you, you can't pick and choose those things. But if you're kind of making sure to take care of your sleep to like have downtime during your day, spread your protein throughout the day, have carbohydrate sandwiched in front of your training window. Like I always feel like you're holding someone back if you don't give them a surplus in that scenario. And it doesn't need to be a huge one. That's something you, kind of that we can talk about in terms of like rate of gain. I don't think someone wants to be in like a thousand calorie surplus, like dirty bulk. And they're just like Lee Priest in his off season, just kind of getting very, very soft around the edges. That's definitely not necessary. There's definitely diminishing returns to the surplus. Um, and we don't have tons of research, like directly looking at surpluses. There's some papers people will draw upon where people like essentially the ratio of muscle to fat just starts like completely going in favor of fat after a certain point. But I think you also want to be in a, if you're so close to being at maintenance that you're like, that surplus is so small that you you may as well be at maintenance. Again, you're kind of in that almost no man's land. And I've just seen it so many times where people will just. They, they won't get anywhere they'll be they're like oh yeah i'm recomping it's like it's been a year and like how how are things going it's like, uh, i think i think things are changing it's like uh, it'll be so much more predictable and determined if you were just in a surplus you had just accepted that and you you get all the benefits of what that surplus is going to bring for you as well your training performance is going to be better and the thing that i always kind of pull people back to is training is the match that lights the fire for muscle gain nutrition is just permissive of that so if you're trying to like light this match vigorously and you've just got this nutrition that's just like uh, it's like the fuel there's a little bit of fuel there and it's like it's just sparking it's like if you just threw on like a bit more fuel like this fire would just ignite and you'd grow this muscle and you'd be like ah yeah now i see it happening all oh, my performance is even going up even more so in my personal experience as a, a trainee the times where i tried to very slowly gain or even recomp i really spanned my wheels badly and it almost made me feel like i was like have I already reached my like natty potential? Like, have I got no more muscle to gain? And uh, in my experience with other clients as well, they've been kind of like, I named it like adipose phobic, like they're scared of fat and they, they just don't want to accept that it's kind of the cost of doing business. If you, if you want to gain that muscle, there's always a, for every gimme, there's a gotcha. That gotcha is there's going to be some fat gain along the way. The really good news is fat's very easy, comparably like physiologically to lose people hate it when i say that because they're like no fat loss is like sucks it's like it's hard it's like, physiologically though it's very easy comparative to gaining new muscle tissue the body's much happier losing fat than putting on more muscle so i also analogize it to like cycling uphill if you're cycling uphill you don't want to make that any harder than it needs to be if you're putting the handbrake on that's almost like not being in a surplus take the handbrake up break off much easier to cycle uphill fat loss is like cycling downhill like so much smoother for the body far more predictable so if if that process is so easy why would you make the process that's so hard even harder 
by not just giving you that extra push that that is that surplus. So I'm very much of a perspective for especially more advanced folks who really want like determinal progress, get yourself in a surplus. It's, it's going to pay off big time. And that fat loss is relatively easy to come by in terms of rate of gain. I actually, some people like to segment it between like novice, intermediate, advanced, advanced gaining slower, novice gaining a bit more quickly because they have more muscle gain potential. There's also the argument that as you're more advanced, muscle gain is harder. And so do you not think actually having even more of a surplus is going to help that, that process even more so? And I really, that, that sings to me because like I said before, muscle gain is so hard. So I don't want to make it any harder than it needs to be. So anything I can do to make that easier, I'm like, I'm on board for without excess costs. So I actually just fall on, I like a rate of gain of between one to 2% per month basically. Uh, I could say like 0.25 to 0.5 per week, but often find like there's, well, yeah. you might find this as well, Cody, of your clients, that like there's times where it spikes up and then it comes down. And then it, so I like to look at like every two weeks to every month. So one to 2% per month for basically anyone. If you're more novice, you can probably go towards more than 2%. Um, I think also if you are more dialing everything in, you can go more towards the 2% or rather the less stuff you have in check, go more, go more slowly because you're just not providing like the, the right, uh, as larger kind of ignition towards muscle gain. If you're, I don't know, your sleep is hit and miss and I don't know, really you should be training five times a week, but you're hitting three sessions. It's like, uh, you're probably not like, uh, in terms of that ignition for muscle gain, you're probably not igniting it as much as you could. So maybe just kind of don't fuel it as much because that's just going to fuel the process that we don't want in terms of fat gain. Um, but yeah, I think I jumped around a little bit, but hopefully answered your question in terms of what my perspective is with that. Yeah, no, that's perfect. You actually touched on a couple extra things that I think were helpful. Um, and I, and I agree with the latter. I think that um, the more advanced you get, the more necessary it is. I know I, I actually went through this a uh, few years ago. I, I kind of found myself spinning my wheels because, it, and, and I blame it on uh, marketing and being marketable as a, the owner of a company, trying to stay lean enough constantly yeah. really held me back, right? And I finally was like, you know what? And I, and I got with Eric Trexler and I was like, dude, here's a year painful. Take me through a gaining phase. Don't let me... Don't let me say otherwise. And we spent 12 months and I put on a lot of weight, but it was like really good weight. My weights went through the roof. And then when I actually dialed back down and got leaner, I was so much bigger and I was heavier than I've been in a long time at that level of body fat. And it's because I spent that time. And I believe, although, you know, and I had Chris on, uh, right before he competed. So right after he really started talking about a lot of the body recom stuff and, uh, and him and I have been pretty good friends for a while now. And so he came on to talk about that. And I agree, you can recomp, but I agree with you in the sense of like the more advanced you get, it just makes so much more sense to do it. Um, and I'd love to get your thoughts on, on, on something along those lines, but I, I want to point out something you said about fat loss being easy. Cause I think like you said, people will say exactly what you said. Like, what are you talking about? It's difficult. It sucks. But often what I say to them, and I would imagine you would agree with this is like in response to that, yeah, but have you ever done a gaining phase? Have you ever gone in surplus? Or when was the last time you went in one? And it's probably been a really long time where they've never actually given it a shot. And to me, that's why a diet is so hard for you every time because you never get out of it. And even if you diligently track your macros every day during a gaining phase, because you're not in a deficit, it is so much less stressful psychologically whether you realize it or not, because you're just not dieting. You're not in deficit. It's way easier to hit your macros. You can fit more things in without going over. And so when you return to the deficit, it actually is really easy because your adherence is so much better. But if you're just kind of dancing on the line constantly year round, when you really get serious for deficit, you've already been like halfway there anyway. And it just sucks when you go into a deficit. So I think to, to your point, it's way easier if people just give into this from that perspective too. Um, now, in regards to the, like, just going for it with gaining phase, do you find, I find this more with women. Um, I think it can happen on both ends, but I've, I've experienced more women who would much rather say, Hey, I don't care if it takes way longer. I'd rather go through a gain taining phase because I don't care about getting huge, but I want to build muscle, but I really want to stay lean. And like, do you have those clients as well? Do you think there's value in saying like, you know what? Most of the time being an advanced lifter, I'd rather go this way, but there are times where people's values are different and therefore we can still do it this way. It just might not be as quick of a process. Yeah, I think um, to your initial point with the, the fat loss, that's a, a great addition, additional side. Like the people who often are like, no, fat loss is really hard. Yeah, they are the ones who 
are just constantly cycling between like they're in fat loss and then i don't know they could go all the other way and like binging like it's, it's just a horrible mm-hmm. cycle to get into and then your body's never in that like very responsive state to fat loss because it's like always battling against it so i completely agree there and then uh, your question towards sorry what was your second question i've completely lost where kind of, my trail of thought was going kind of like uh, I, I categorize it to women but i would say anybody whose values are different from a goal yes. perspective right like gaintaining being okay absolutely so i think this is coaching so what you just demonstrated to me is that you're a great coach. Uh, and if I was to like disagree with that, I'd be like, what? <laughs> like, I just <laughs> think I was a terrible coach because I'm not listening to who is paying me for a service once. Now I would, and like you said, you demonstrate to them what your thoughts and beliefs are behind that and how, okay, we could try recomping. Let's see if that works. Maybe like if, if you would for me and what I might suggest to them is like, we can do this for a number of months then we're like, see how things are going. If we're like, is anything happening? Maybe would we be able to approach like a gaining phase at some point? So absolutely, like the client has their needs and desires and their wants. You put forth what you think, but at the end of the day, you have to find like a middle ground because um, they're paying you because they're struggling to see results. So if you just, I don't know, do everything that the, the client wants, like you're just, they're just paying you to get the same results that they're already getting. So you do want to give you your point of view and perspective and be strong to that. But at the end of the day, like you said, because we keep up with the science and the literature, we're not like black and white thinking, no, you have to be in a surplus to gain muscle. We know it could happen at recomp. It's just tougher. So we can see if it does, we can kind of experiment with them and see how that goes. Uh, because yeah, absolutely. Uh, thankfully, a lot of the people I work with, like, I don't know. They they seem happy enough to go through it, or they've already. They, a lot of them have already tried this recomp, and they're yeah. like, "It just it's not going to work." I'm going to listen. Like they're just they're like, "I'm just going to listen to you because <laughs> it's clearly not been working for me." So I, I don't have to deal with it too often. But yeah, definitely, if that was a scenario, I would do just as you outlined. Well, and and I think you do a really good job at this. Uh, you and I both put out so much content. I get coaches will ask me sometimes, like, "How do I?" how do I get the right people to apply for coaching or work with me? And I'm like, man, talk about what you believe in, what you do almost every day. Like if you really love this stuff, it's not hard to create content because you just love talking about it. So if you, if you get the chance to never shut up about it, it's like, hallelujah, like let's just keep pumping it out. Um, and those people will come. So I agree hundred percent, man. Uh, okay. I, I want to touch on some of the questions. Actually, I really wanted to go over with you because uh, we haven't even touched on any of them yet. And this has already been really good, but <laughs> Uh, you mentioned uh, two-day training, and that was one of the things I wanted to ask you about because um, I was actually talking with uh, – there's a couple topics on here that I was talking with uh, Jackson. You had, you just had him on recently too. I was talking to him about this about a week ago, um, a couple different things, and two-a-days was one of them. And the thing with two-a-days always seemed like it was just too much. It was always one of those things that – unless you were playing a sport where you had like pr- one session was, was practice and one was like weight training or something, it just didn't make sense. Um, and then I started seeing like you and, and Mike and some of these guys do it. And I was like, actually, that's like a really intelligent way to do it. And then I believe they just came out with a study on this, basically proving exactly what you're talking about. I don't know if you're familiar with that. I just saw it in mass research view, like this latest uh. issue. And I want to say Mike Zordos was the one that re- uh, reviewed it. But I, I want to say it literally just proved exactly what you said earlier as far as like basically saving room in the tank to have a higher amount of volume total by the end of the week or month or whatever. Um, but what, are you, what is your experience with that? I mean, did you, did you see a big difference when you did that? Do you reserve that for surpluses? Like who do you think this is good for? I just want to kind of get your overall thoughts on it in general. Yeah. So, yeah, I've been doing it a long time. Uh, so I've been doing tour days since 2017. Uh, so like, yeah, years of it. And my perspective has changed a little bit and my application of it has changed a little bit. Um, and when I initially did it, I essentially was, saw that Jared Feather was doing it. And I was like, well, Jared Feather, like smart, huge, jacked, like let's try implementing it. And I had some consultation calls with him. He helped me develop a program. So I was kind of implementing it smartly uh, and doing it in, a, in a, like evidence as best an evidence-based way so for example you wouldn't do something like someone might think i'll do a two a day for my push workout and i'll do my compound lifts in the morning and my isolations in the evening so they do like a bench press there in the morning and then in the evening they go and do like a cable fly it's like you've just kind of really damaged your chest in that morning session and now you're going to go and damage it as it's probably just trying to recover from that morning that doesn't really make sense mm-hmm. so it's like oh actually like do all your chest work and then come and do your isolation work cool or like i had done this in times like triceps in the morning and then chest in the evening it's like oh but now you fatigue your tricep now the triceps is going to be the limiting factor on all your chest work it's like 
Uh, so there's definitely some smarter ways to go about this and, and like less smart ways. And you also have to not get carried away with volume, which I definitely did in the past, where you treat both workouts like full workouts. It's like, no, you have like your main workout and then like an accessory workout. So the evening one's always a bit shorter and uh, less demanding. I think they need to be as well. So yeah, for a long time, I split everything like six days a week, two sessions every time, even on the weekends I was doing that. I say that because like that sometimes would get really inconvenient for me and it was quite annoying, but I'd still just do it because that's who I was like, that's what I'm going to do. Whereas over time I've uh, kind of changed it a little bit. So at the moment and what I've been running recently is my upper body sessions, I split in two, but lower body, I just get all done in one. So it's normally like a quad dominant day with a little bit of hamstrings. So like I get my quads and then a little bit of hamstrings rather than coming back in the evening, doing a little bit of hamstrings. Cause like I said to you off air, I trained legs this morning. Like I don't, I don't want to go back. <laughs> I don't want to go back once yeah. I've done legs. That might be cause I'm bigger and stronger now. And so the systemic fatigue is just higher, but I found combining my legs and just getting those done in one psychologically and physiologically made sense. Whereas upper body far more easy to get it done. And also the upper body, there's just more moving parts. There's more muscles here. And so like things like delts, like side delts, I don't know about you, Cody, but they can take quite a bit of volume. If I have to do like, I don't know, sometimes I like five sets, like some lateral raises at the end of like a upper body session. I'm like, fuck that. Mm -hmm. I, I prefer to come home, have a meal, chill out a little bit, come back and do it. And I'm like, yeah, now I can do five sets. Whereas if I had it at the end of my workout, maybe I'd only be able to get like two or three. Um, or if I tried to do five, maybe some of those would end up becoming junk volume, which is really what this ended up doing is just allowed me to, when I think about it, I think about it as a element of training frequency so it's like why do we train at higher frequencies because we want to spread the volume out more so we can get higher quality volume done as we get more advanced we probably need to do more volume and we want to spread it over more sessions so it's like we're spreading even more by doing two a days it's just a way of getting more quality volume done so it's definitely an advanced thing like i wouldn't be giving this to like your newbie who can basically get away with three sessions full body so definitely someone someone would want to use when they're more advanced and i think i introduced it probably earlier than I def definitely earlier than I needed it. And I wouldn't say anyone needs it, but certainly for more advanced folks who find, but maybe to the tail end of their training sessions, they're just finding themselves like the session's dragging, feels a bit more junky. If they have the opportunity to split that into two, they might just find, oh, I can get more quality volume done. So I do think it, it has uh, credence there. And I also found um, during fat loss phases, I started doing it less because my volume requirements were less and the psychological toll of going to the gym just became mm -hmm. like horrendous. So in contest prep for the last like couple of mesocycles, so 10 weeks or so, I just got all my sessions done in one because I was just like, man, I just, I can't face having to go to the gym again. Uh, so that, that, those are times where I pulled back. Uh, and then even now, something I was kind of a bit of a stickler on was if you're going to do two a days, you want to start your mesocycle with two a days and don't change, like, don't go from single sessions to then two a days because that like throws a new variable in. But as I've done it more, I've realized that that was a bit black and white thinking. And actually I found you could just introduce two a days as you're coming towards like the, the, the tail end of your mesocycle. And it just allows you to keep the quality higher where maybe you'd have to deload in like week five, but now you can deload in like week six because you'd be able to spread out that volume a bit more so you so i've started introducing that sometimes so like for example my week one of my mesocycle i still start those relatively like comfortable around my minimum effective volumes i don't need to split that into two it's just like more steps for the sake of walking back and forth my morning session is uh sorry the the like compound lists that i do at the start of my session are purposefully less kind of fatiguing and overloading so it means that that second part of my session i don't need to spread it out whereas when i get into like weeks three weeks four week five like the, the two a days become really important to me to get the best training uh, uh the best training done so yeah hopefully that answered your question or kind of gave you some thoughts <laughs> yeah i think uh I'm, I'm i mean number one i'm glad you pointed out it's an advanced technique number two i think like we kind of alluded to this earlier just based on your lifestyle like it's got to obviously match your lifestyle and I know as coaches we always focus on that first because we're not going to just spit out what we think would be the most optimal from a science-based perspective and ignore whatever you have going on in your life um, but also like the idea of, of tapering it during a deficit that was actually something that um, we I, I was the reason I was talking to Jackson about it is because we were talking about me potentially doing it when I go into a gaining phase um, because I have this gym so like I come here in the morning and I have a solid yeah 
six to seven hours before I do my session anyway. So it's like, it's a perfect split between the two. Um, but ultimately it sounds like it's just, it's a good way to get quality training in. And it's, and it's cool to hear because, you know, one thing I learned when I started getting more into bodybuilding and hypertrophy training was, you know, originally I, I kind of came up in a strength world. So it was like athletes, strength training and gen pop, but very much so like full body, upper, lower spit. That's it. Like you don't need to train more than four days a week, really, maybe five if you want. Like, and, but a lot of times it was extra conditioning because we had fat loss, gen pop people, or we had athletes. Once I started kind of going into the bodybuilding world, it's just kind of a different art, you know? And like right now, like I hit my arms on my leg day because I realized that, you know, like the amount of volume my back can take from my upper body, it just like, by the time I get to biceps at the end, it's like they're taxed, you know, and I can't curl as much, but if I do curls before, then it doesn't allow me to do as much volume on my back. And that's like the main thing I want to grow. So I was like, I'm just going to push these to tomorrow. And I actually ended up like curling an extra five pounds easily. And I was like, ah, okay. You know? And so that's something I picked up a while ago of like, there's really no black and white answer to like what your training split should be. And that's why it's kind of hard when sometimes I call it evidence-based bro split. Cause people are like, like what split are you following? It's like, well, it's, it's kind of a bro split because I'm focused on muscle groups, but at the same time, it's like, well, I'm like throwing this here and then I'm bringing this over here and then I'm yeah. touching on this a little bit over here because you're just divvying up the volume and two days almost make that even easier because you're really just managing fatigue even better, right? I mean, essentially. Is exactly what you said there in terms of like to get the best growth stimulus, you want to just basically distribute your volume in a way that promotes the highest quality volume possible. So like being able to do the most load for those repetitions. So however you can distribute that, that's going to be ideal. So like doing your arm training on a leg day makes complete sense. So long as that doesn't somehow take away from like your leg training or the next day's session. And those are some advanced like considerations you have to come across because there are some muscle groups that they just, yeah, like you said, they don't fit like your push-pull legs because like biceps for a lot of people, they can train them like four days a week, maybe even like their side delts four times a week. So well, I can't call that like, do you call your leg day a leg? Yeah, you probably call it a leg day, but it's also legs and arms. <laughs> it's like, so it, it's tr tricky. Like, so, so when I, someone asked me my split, I'm like, like it's an upper lower split, but yeah, that doesn't really explain it because I have like emphasis on some days because like I'm hitting more of my upper chest this day. I'm focusing more on back that day with a little bit of chest and like, it, yeah, the, you just have to be way more precise with all, everything you're doing. It's like, I guess like a Michelin star chef when he's like, this is like the advanced bodybuilder. Like he's like measuring out all these ingredients precisely to make the best, best dish possible. Whereas when you're just starting out, like anything tastes good and you can just like throw it in the oven, take it out. It's like, great. So we have to be way more precise with everything that we're putting in there. Yeah. I, I, I'm glad that we're saying this too, because we have a lot of people that use our app for training and they'll be like, well, you know, it was busy. So I just kind of put this over here and I did this exercise before this one instead. And I'm like, no, like there's a reason <laughs> like your fatigue levels change during work. Like you can't just flop it around. Um, you know, one of the things that I think this is a perfect segue to is the whole like volume versus intensity debate. Um, and it's, I've gone so back and forth on this because I mean, as you know, there was so much research that came out on volume being the most important thing. Um, and then I kind of dug deeper and deeper and some of them like, wait, how did they do 40 sets per week? That doesn't make any sense. And then you're like, oh, well they're only doing like pull downs, like press and bench press and that's it. And it's like, okay, well they're leaving out so much. So their overall systemic fatigue isn't as high. That kind of makes sense. But what does that tell us? And then there was that study more recent where they did an increase in volume, which I thought was really, really smart. They monitored how much volume are they already doing before the study. Let's increase it X percentage or whatever, um, which I loved. But then there's also people even like, uh, you know, there's, there was some people I want to say is I, I don't follow a lot of his content, but you've had him. I think it's JP massive dude and he's very Jordan Peters yeah okay so very intensity driven right and I was like okay and yeah. then there's still the volume guys and then I had Chris on and Chris kind of changed his stance and he's very much so like intention and intensity focused now and he's a natural lifter so now I'm like okay where is it and where you stand in my opinion is that's still high volume but now you're taking a high volume approach and you're divvying it up so that you can accomplish more intensity, which is really hard to do. You can't do both, but in your case, you kind of can because you're doing it. So I'm, I guess I'm just curious, like how have you changed over the years of like all the research coming out, your experience, like what do you believe is the best route now? So it's a really good question uh, because I have seen people potentially flip flop a little bit and uh, the UK scene, I don't know if you know it, but it's highly driven by Jordan Peters. So what okay. he does, it kind of like uh, funnels down to a lot of the UK bodybuilding scene. 
Whereas I think I my philosophy and approach is more more what you guys are doing in, in America. So you're in America, right, Cody? Yeah, yeah. I'm not getting that completely. Yeah, yeah, I thought you were. So yeah, it's I, I'm more kind of in line with what you do, guys do. And actually a lot of the evidence-based scene, the people I interview on the podcast are American, actually tons in Florida, <laughs> funnily enough, for some reason, whereas there doesn't seem to be as big a scene here in the UK. Um, and uh, I think good reason, like Jordan Peters, like he's a huge individual, um, talks very well. Uh, and yeah, he, he likes his low volume, higher intensity approach. And I think he, he, he even had periods of trying to dabble with, and he came on with Mike Isretel and mm -hmm. Mike talked through his philosophy and why he thinks that's the way to go. And I think if I'm honest, that crowd are very psychologically, they need to do a certain thing. They kind of, I had a t-shirt. I remember back in the day when I first went into bodybuilding, it was go hard or go home. It's very black and white. Like I go into the gym, I destroy myself, I leave. This is what I do. Whereas for something like two a day training, so for two a day training, this for them would not work. They go to the gym, they get it done, they leave. They're not going back to do it again. They fucking left everything in the gym. Whereas for me, I'm much more methodical and thought out. I, I would, uh, this, that, that sounds a bit cruel maybe to them, but I feel like, when I'm happy to go into the gym, do enough, go away, come back. I treat it much more like, I don't know, it isn't such a, I don't need the psychological thrill of, oh, I hit failure today or mm. my biceps were bursting and peeling off the bone. I get enjoyment from knowing I'm following a plan that's methodical, laid out, and is going to ultimately lead me to the best results. So I, I, I just get a lot of enjoyment out of that. And I guess part of the reason maybe this works for me is because I'm psychologically driven to enjoy that. I don't enjoy the thought of just going to the gym, smashing myself and like coming out. And there's more to it than that for like a Jordan's approach or a low volume approach. Like they, they think through their training more than maybe like I would give them credit to. I'm absolutely sure. But I enjoy, like I said, knowing that I have like these volume landmarks. I know that we have thresholds for overload and theoretically it makes sense that i'm going to grow the best if i can kind of meet those minimum thresholds move through what is called like maximal adaptive volume so still using the principles of kind of that mike israel laid out with the volume landmarks where i'm going to grow the most try and hang out in this growth zone as long as possible and i don't need to be training at failure here which means maybe my volume can be a bit higher because the stimulus to fatigue trade-offs a bit better so i'm getting more stimulus less fatigue growing my best and eventually i'm going to hit a wall because you can't just keep growing forever and training in this zone forever because the body adapts you get adaptive resistance you get accumulated fatigue i'm going to eventually hit a wall where then my performance is either going to just plummet so i kind of try and avoid that take a deload somewhat kind of reset things maintain my good fitness levels drop down fatigue come through and be able to perform again but not try and beat that final week before the deloads performance but look back at week one let's just get a bit above that so i'm kind of moving up and up and up so i don't know the last time i can't remember the last time i was on your podcast and whether or not um, i imagine though i was using and i like my perspective on like training volume and intensity hasn't really changed over the last like four five years and i think a big reason for that is i don't think anything in the literature has come out that's massively changed anything i think the principles of we need to be training close to failure with an amount of volume that we can recover from has stayed the same and tried and true and whatever method you want to develop that can get you doing that productively is going to work really well and i've just found time and time again this method of starting at minimum effective volumes with minimum effective relative intensities moving up through week on week just adding a bit of load a bit of volume maybe a set here or there where i'm recovering and then kind of deloading backing off rinsing repeating has just worked so fundamentally well for me and just suits me my kind of psychology and like it's just very systematic and met, met, uh, methodical that yeah i i haven't gone to like uh you know starting a mesocycle for example at like two rar just i i i don't feel like i need to go there um like psychologically and i think from the literature we're just actually if anything more literature has come out in favor of you don't need to train to failure and you can actually leave quite a few reps in reserve and uh, whenever I see arguments against leaving reps in reserve, to me, it just all seems emotionally driven. Mm -hmm. When people lay out the science, it's like, oh, but people in studies, they don't know how to like report failure. They leave way too many reps in reserve and stuff. It's like, yeah, but is that you? <laughs> because I'm, I can tell you, like, if I'm leaving with not reps in reserve, it's not reps in reserve. I ain't got any left. Like, I'm not worried that I'm training too easy. And if they're training too easy in these studies, 
and seeing results like i mean it's not too easy then it's just like even easier than maybe we think we could train so i think a lot of it to be honest is like psychology and mentality and if if it doesn't drive with you though i can completely respect why people would want to go like i prefer to train a bit harder do a bit less knowing that this is probably very close to like quote unquote optimal we don't know what optimal is so i'm going to run with that because it's just a bit too ambiguous when i'm starting at like trying to start at minimum levels i just don't even like that term <laughs> like some people i can see that I, I totally get it if they want to start more kind of towards where i spend most of my time anyway uh, i understand that and i can respect that too i think uh, Hope that made sense <laughs> yeah it does I, I would agree i think there's a, there's a few things that i would point out that i'd love to for you to elaborate on and one i would say this too is like i think the problem I see with, uh, like, I remember reading some of, like, the original, it seems like a, a lot of it came from Mike Zordos. I feel like he did a lot of the the RIR, RPE, like, reviews and mass and stuff. Yeah. I remember reading it and being like, there's no way that you're stimulating hypertrophy with four reps in reserve. Like, that should, you just can't do it. And then I started, like, filming and testing my own personal RIR and RPE scale, and it made a little more sense because I, I think the problem with it and a lot of a lot of people's argument against it is that people aren't training to the actual RPE or RIR we're talking about. And I a hundred percent think that's the case. And I think it's an educative thing. Like when you get more experience in the gym, you get better at taking it to failure. And if you get really good and able to take it to failure, you can actually stay at four, three, two RIR and get growth because you realize that a two RIR is still really hard. <laughs> you know, you're leaving two reps in the tank, but it's like gun to your head, two reps in the tank. Like it's different than what most people think. And it actually took me I think the one video that really did it for me is uh, I was doing like a, I think I was just doing a single on the squat and that's been a, actually I've had two knee surgeries. So like for me, that's been one I've always been trying to work up on again. And uh, I, I literally racked the bar after full range of motion, was really happy with it, but I was like, that was RIR one at most, like I had nothing. And I set it to the camera and I looked at the video and I was like, oh no, I had like three easily. Cause it was just like butter. Like I just went right up. And so then I started really kind of thinking about those things, you know, and I think um, ultimately, in my opinion, um, and this is what I'd love to get your thoughts on. I think it comes down to one, that experience of like being able to actually gauge it. Number two, exercise selection, because, you know, for somebody like I'm pretty sure you are this way, too. I know I am. I like barbell movements. So if I'm doing failure training with barbell movements or one RIR all the time, it's going to bang me up versus if I'm doing like a leg press or a chest press hammer strength machine, it's different. It's just not as fatiguing globally, like from a systemic level. Um, so I think those two things play a big role. And then I also think uh, individual variances like joint health, for example. So for me, I can't take the leg training so far because of my knee surgeries, but I can take my upper body training, especially like my back or delts and stuff like that way further to, to failure because I don't get banged up joints from it. But if I do too much on my legs, I feel it on my ankles, hips, and knees because I've had multiple surgeries. So like over time, they just got tighter. The ligaments aren't as strong. Um, so I think for people who make a black and white stance, I think it's like, there's just so much more to it. And I'm sure with your clients, you probably have to kind of shift more to one side or the other, depending on the person. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. There's um, like some movements are, there's less kind of uh, risks involved or cons or the, the fatigue is like much less so like isolation based movements in general mm -hmm. if you were to train to closer to failure on those just generally more then i could see, absolutely see that and i also think potentially on those uh kind of small isolation based lifts people are less able to like gauge it like you can grind like on a leg extension for example i see people like think they're at not rir just as it gets uncomfortable i'm like when it gets uncomfortable you're like five <laughs> like you you got more to push through and it, it like you said it's so important to get your own experience with it and uh, actually the people who are going to be best suited to using kind of reps and reserve training are those who have trained to failure a lot mm -hmm. like they're the ones who are best suited to it because actually reps and reserve again the, the kind of reason we use that is to accumulate more productive training, hopefully with a better stimulus to fatigue ratio. And that's the, the people who that matters most for are the more advanced people. And often actually it's the more advanced people are most against it, um, which is kind of, I, I get it, get why that happens, but they're the people who it's almost best suited to because now they have all that log book data. They know where all their like their best performances are. They can just be like, okay, let's try leaving four reps away from that or three reps away from that. See how that feels. Uh, and yeah, they might then be able to just like move through it and get into that really productive zone and, 
I, I think some people have moved towards that and they're, they're doing really well with it. Other people aren't. Uh, but yeah, like you said, some you have to know because what I was going to say is, for example, for me, I know I can grind like reps. Like I put up a set of hack squats just today. Actually, it was a RAR set because people love seeing that stuff. And uh, like people, like someone like Charlie Young from RP, if he put his RAR set up, you'd be like, Charlie, you have like four reps in reserve but he is a completely different athlete to me. His quad is like, I don't know, maybe 90% fast twitch muscle fibers. So he just fatigues like that. He just completely drops off. Like he knows, he knows where his limits are. Whereas for me, I know like I can grind through reps. And if I don't let myself grind through, like I don't know it. So it is important to test yourself and get the understanding and also different movements. There's more grindability on certain movements versus others. Like even rowing, like a barbell bent over row, there's only so much you can grind there because after a while, you're just going to start swinging it and you know it because you start feeling it in your hips and your arms and not your back where you're trying to hit it. Whereas like a chest supported machine row, you can like the final rep, you can grind that almost the whole entire way because you've got the chest support. It's much more kind of amenable towards that. So like, yeah, you, you absolutely need to experience it yourself. And uh, so the, the nice thing that reps in reserve do for you is like, you, you don't have to stress about knowing that you've absolutely hit failure. As long as you feel like, Reps definitely like slowed down. They were really tough. I'm not sure I had really very many left. Like you're in a good spot, but I think every now and then it doesn't matter. Maybe you do it. So it's the last set of an exercise every week, or you have like me, you leave it to one week within like a month long mesocycle to test yourself because you have to do it every now and then to know. And like you also mentioned, it's a skill in some ways, like to maintain, especially to maintain good technique, taking it all the way to not RER, like that's a skill because it might be something you see with your clients. So I'll see it with my less experienced clients where they're like, take it to no RER. And I'm like, yeah, but your technique broke down after like the first, like uh, the last three reps, mm -hmm. like you, you cut the range of motion, you weren't pausing it anymore. Like these sort of things kind of sink in. So once you get to the point where, yeah, you, you kind of have experience, you've got enough experience with it. For me, it's a system that works really well when you can accumulate some really productive volume through it. Yeah. hundred percent agree. That's a good point with the, the muscle fibers like uh, and I think a lot of people listening have probably had this but I've, I've had training partners who are on the opposite spectrum of me with that very explosive strong athletes and it is it's really cool to train with them and see the difference um, and you got to be able to experience that um, Two, one funny question uh, funny to you probably and then uh, another like curious question uh, num one when you say no RIR we're saying zero right Zero, yeah. Okay, we don't say that in the United States. So I was just like, oh, I do you not say no? No, I think that's zero. <laughs> I was cracking up. You said, uh, what do you call rice cakes? Uh, oh, okay. So we have rice cakes, but we call them like you have Quakers rice cakes, and they're flavored, right? Yeah. I would call that a snacker jack. <laughs> snacker jack. You said that on the. Yeah. Uh, luckily, like you explained it when you said it to Mike, because you were like, I don't think you guys say this, but um, yeah, it's it's so funny how there's like differences in that. But okay, so zero yeah. RIR. <laughs> The other question I had is, uh, do you notice that it's one of the things I started like kind of thinking about is like, you know, for, for example, for me to go to RIR zero on a bench press five years ago is different than me doing it today because I'm more advanced, but there's like this spectrum, right? Because like now if I go there, it's going to hit me way harder because I can bench press hundred plus pounds more, let's say, right. I'm, I'm much stronger than I was five years ago. So it's going to tax me way for more from a neurological perspective as well as a joint perspective. And then on the other end, when you're new, you actually don't even have the neurological capacity to max out. So you can't, you don't even have the skill. So I kind of find that there's this like evolution of like, you learn how to finally do it, but then you get so strong that you, you got to stop doing it. And so my question would be that, do you see that the stronger people get, probably the more they should stay away from those things unless, and I kind of noticed this a little bit with the people outside of Chris Bearcat, um, which he does a lot more machine stuff, but when you're on steroids, uh, a lot of people don't realize that like uh, they think steroids, they just think testosterone, but there's so much more involved. And a lot of times your organs, your tendons, your ligaments, everything grows. And so my thought is, is like, well, maybe they can handle more of that because if they're strengthening their if their bones, ligaments, tendons, everything is growing and they're more resilient, is that a factor that allows them to go further without banging up their joints versus somebody, like I said before, like if I go too hard, my joints are just going to be crushed. And so I can't do it. Do you see that being a common theme that you notice in the, in the space? 
Yeah, it's definitely an interesting one. Um, I can't talk too much about the enhanced side just because I'm so unbelievably, unbelievably ignorant to it. So I just like, <laughs> all I know is uh, for some, when they initially start it, they get such fast strength gains mm. that they have to hold some back because uh. like you said, the joints, ligaments and things aren't growing at the rate that their muscles are growing. So if they just, and you'll see this sometimes with guys, I don't know, maybe they're blasting or whatever. That's what they call it. Right. So they're like blasting. And then they just like, they're just like, Oh yeah, let's get stronger, like more weight on the bar. And then they like blow like a peck or something. Cause things aren't kind of the, the rest of the supporting structure isn't growing along with them. Um, and then to your other question in terms of like, yeah, training at that output as much, I think that's just where you have to pull back volume so much. Like if you are going to go like to not one RL more frequently, you just have to do less because like you said, there is that fatigue cost that is higher. And that's the cold kind of the, what it boils down to is where is the sweet spot in terms of you're so close to failure where you're getting a really good stimulus, but the fatigue isn't too high do we see as maybe some people theorize once you're past two RAR, do you see an exponential cost in fatigue for just a little bit more stimulus and maybe not that much more? And then that's like, well, if we are, why, why kind of spend too much time going there and only go there when we need to. And it's, it's hard for some people to pull back from that. Um, but definitely if there's people with like, you know, really strong individuals, they may even like only be able to do it like, once a week or like once every other week be able to take it to that point just because the fatigue cost is, is so hard of that style of training or like you said i don't know um I, some people have like the most responsive hamstrings ever they almost have to like start like five rar maybe six rar and like never really approach like rep slowing down too much because they just get like sore for like a week it's just so stimulative to them which is like crazy to me because i never get that response but some people just have really responsive muscle groups uh so you just have to taper it back i think uh, this is like this is the kind of stuff where i just encourage people to keep a a logbook a notes on your phone or something that like you can take notes and, and pay attention to these things because there's so much that you can learn about your body that can't fully be explained in research we can get a lot of good ideas from research but the truth is is that you know applying it and seeing how you respond it's just so individual you know um and that's in so like the last question i have for you today because i want to respect your time um is is like really just i think more than anything because i don't think you can elaborate too much on on how to work through this necessarily but just like piece of advice because like we said before you weren't blessed with the best genetics and you actually came from a polar opposite thing like you're you're a long distance runner with bad genetics and then you become uh like I'm going to call it a pro bodybuilder. Cause in my mind you are man, like for what you do and what you've achieved and the fact that you got invited over the pond, as we call it to compete at worlds, like it's so impressive, you know? So you've came so far and, um, I actually did a full podcast on genetics and I went through a lot of the research on genetics. Um, and then I did a podcast on placebo and it was interesting cause there was some genetic factors that actually kind of shifted based on what people were told in research. So a lot of times what I tell people just as a, as a, piece of advice is stop telling yourself you have bad genetics because if you do you're definitely going to have bad genetics because placebo is very real um but in general man like what is your advice for people because you're actually like you're i mean you are the proof like genetics can't hold you back from going to the top level and obviously you take this very seriously compared to most but i think there's still a lot that people can take from you and apply to their own life to be able to work through that too yeah, the, uh, the really short answer, if I was to be this like ridiculous, would just be like, don't think about it. <laughs> like that would be my really short answer. Someone asked me on a, a Q&A, basically, they're like, how, how close do you think you are to your genetic limit, your ceiling? And I was like, I don't think about it. Mm. I literally just put that. And I think that can be quite a powerful statement in its own right. Like I, I literally don't think about it. Like I understand theoretically there's a genetic ceiling, but I don't think in practice you could ever know that. And I also don't think in practice, like many people reach it because I think possibly we don't know the best way to do things just yet with our training and nutrition. We could advance that and get even better. And I think for a lot of people, they get like a, a lifestyle restriction. Like there's almost like a lifestyle limit because they get to like the early thirties and maybe they've got a bunch of injuries that holds them back. Possibly also they start having kids, their career starts taking off and just bodybuilding just goes by the backside and they, they can't invest as much into that. So I think there's those realistic things because like you can invest less into it. And now you also 
need to invest more into it <laughs> because like it demands more because there's the adaptive resistance that builds up and you just have to try and like overload is harder to come by so there comes this like crossing point where i think people think they're at their limit but they just they can't get past it because it's just not in their scope maybe or they don't know how to troubleshoot it effectively um but what i would say is when i first started the person i really aspired to look like was matt ogus and for a long time i was like i just i'm not sure he's he's like natural it's like not at all whereas for the last like four years and not like to just besmirch his character or anything it was my ignorance to what could be achieved whereas after the last four years i'm like wow like how have i actually got to a point where i'm like if me and matt stood next to each other and like did a pose down i wouldn't look like completely ridiculous mm -hmm. he's clearly not on roids at all because i don't have very like like you said i don't have the best genetics he clearly has very good genetics and now when people ask me like do you think doug miller's natural and they're hoping i'm gonna go like of course he's not natural like that's a complete joke so i fundamentally i have no reason to believe he's not natural like he, he clearly has absurd genetics mm -hmm. and he has always stated he's completely natural and he's only ever competed in natural federations like that we know like you'd you'd looked over the research the bell curve is wild like people at the end of the bell curve um both sides so there's people who just like complete non-responders and there's people who are just like absurd genetic freaks and the more time i spend doing this the more time i see these absurd genetic freaks and i also start to see the people who think they're over the other end when they really are consistent about their training nutrition and for years start actually proving to themselves uh, my genetics aren't as bad as I, I thought they once were. So my advice for anyone who's listening who, I don't know, they, they feel a bit down about their physique or what have you, like truly invest years doing things fundamentally very well. And then like look back at how much you've achieved and then kind of have a think about it. And then just question yourself, is the kind of cost of how much I'm investing worth the time and effort? Um, am I getting enough out of the process? Because for me, like I said, I fundamentally, my lifestyle and my psychology is like driven to love what I do every single day. So it's the costs are very low to me for doing this and the outcome of what I see and the progression within the sport has been really worth it. Whereas, yeah, like there might be someone else or me in another world. Like I try running and I might wait, like I actually take to running really well. So I just like go for running, like fine, like just do what makes you happy at the end of the day, especially in natural bodybuilding. Like even like, like you said, like I'm a, a pro or whatever. Even if I was a pro, it wouldn't change anything about me. It would mean nothing. I can put it in my bio, but I'm not getting any money for that. Like nothing fundamentally is changing in my life. No one's really going to remember me for being like a natural pro or whatever. I think people are more going to remember me for like, to know, the podcast or like informational. They're probably not going to remember me at all. But you know what I mean? Like it's it, at the end of the day, it's, it's not that big a deal. Like enjoy your life, like live it. If you really enjoy bodybuilding, but you're not getting the best results from it, maybe invest in a coach or educate yourself further, see if you can get more enjoyment after you kind of get things done better. And then maybe it's not for you if you've invested truly like years of doing things consistently well and just get nailing the basic fundamentals. Maybe you're like, man, it's just not worth the, the cost and energy and investment. Like, I, like you might see some results, but if it's not enough for you, then it's not enough. That's fine. I love that. I think, uh, I mean, number one, Doug's a freak. Um, yeah. And, and he, I've seen him talk about his drug test that he passed, but he, it, it's a good example. And I think that um, there's a lot of times where people, I, I don't know his background, but I know people personally, and I know a lot of people who are genetically gifted that way, who, if you actually look at their history, like they were young athletes from age five, you know, and they were playing active sports and being physical. So a lot of times, like, even though it's not weight training, they're, having applied resistance to them at a malleable stage of their nervous system. And so they kind of like what I found in a lot of genetics, there was a lot of tie-ins to epigenetics of how people's childhood actually like put them in the perfect position to later on do that thing. So there's, you always got to think about that too. And, and um, there's a quote that says, uh, raise your commitment or lower your standards. And it sounds like kind of hardcore to be like, like commit to more or, or stop bitching, you know, like, but the, to an extent, it's like, well, if you really, really want it, you just have to raise your commitment level or lower down your standards of what you want to achieve. Because I even thought about this not too long ago. Like we went through a period of time uh, where I was just, I mean, I was so busy between being a dad, the business, all this stuff. And it's kind of getting to a point where I'm like, all right, things are like delegated and smooth. Like I actually have more time to commit to my body again if I want to. And it's like the question of genetic potential. It's like, well, 
I can't even answer that question because I can name 20 things that I'm not doing right now that could be better. Like I could sleep another hour. I could split my day into two a day training. I could do better about my nutrition. I like, there's so many things I could do that would enhance it. And I think there's a lot of people who might think they're maxing out their genetics, but there's just so many little things left on the table that like those 1% differences could make a 10% increase that leads to significantly better results. And then you are going beyond what you thought was your genetic potential, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think it's one of the hardest things is because as you advance, like where you're at now, Cody, to see fundamental changes in your physique, mm-hmm. you, you, you'd, like in a phallus phase, it's great because you get like weekly results, but in that gaining phase, the delayed gratification is completely yeah. real, which is why I said like, you have to really fundamentally enjoy this because as a natural, as an advanced natural, like the results, they do come slow. But what I always like to say to people is like, never count yourself out. Uh, in terms of, for me, I saw better growth between 2017 to 2021 than 2014 to 2017. It's backwards. That shouldn't make sense. I got more advanced, yet my growth expedited. And that's just because I applied myself better to it. Uh, I learned more about myself. I was better at like individualizing my training to me. So I always like to just say to people, like, put your best efforts forward and like, you'll get the best outcome you can get and be happy with it. Like almost that stoic kind of mindset, because there's nothing worse than, like you said, it is kind of to your saying, like lower your standards or like raise your efforts in that sense. Because I think, I don't know why people don't seem to get it in like bodybuilding. They think they can be Ronnie Coleman, like if they work hard enough, whereas they understand I can't be like uh, Kobe Bryant or whoever because I'm not fucking seven foot. Like, it's just not going to happen for me. Like I'm five foot 10. Like I'm never going to be a pro like basketball player. It's the genetics are the same for bodybuilding. It's just, they're not as evident uh, for us. I think. Yeah. hundred percent, dude, uh, man. Well, I'm gonna let you go, dude. This has been great. I've really, really enjoyed this conversation. This was a great, uh, uh, third podcast to have you on uh so i appreciate your time man there's a ton of great info everybody could could take and actually apply which is what i love talking to you about uh, but give us your you know site instagram podcast like everything so i can put in the show notes just tell everybody where they can find you and consume your content because you're putting out a ton of great content that they can learn from um, and that way i can let everybody know where to go thanks so much yeah it's been a, a fun chat hopefully people have got some takeaways and if they have questions after this lingering that maybe I kind of blasted through something or something didn't make sense. Please do send me a message. Uh, Revive Stronger on Instagram. That's where I'm most present. Uh, Revivestronger.com is our website with our coaching and uh, with our members site and also with the podcast on there, or they can just go into any podcast app or YouTube and find the Revive Stronger podcast. We're also putting out my vlogs. Uh, my old vlogs have almost all gone out now uh, that I like, I vlogged my entire contest prep. So people can see me on like the world stage if they want to. And, um, yeah. So the vlogs are going out basically on the YouTube channel. That's what I was trying to say. Yeah. So yeah. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Makes it way easier when everything is the same. Revive stronger. So go there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's easy. <laughs> so perfect, man. Thanks again for coming on. 